This is an MPT Magazine podcast. For more information, find us online at www.mptmagazine.com. My name is Sasha Dugdale, I'm the Artistic Co-Director of the Winchester Poetry Festival, and I'm also the Editor of Modern Poetry and Translation. And before I continue um, with this um, introduction, I'd like you all just to check that you've turned off your mobile phones, turned silent, and also to point out that we have an emergency exit here. Um, I'd also like to um, thank a few people and organisations who've helped us put together tonight's reading. Um, it's really important. It's a, Winchester Poetry Festival is, uh, well, is a great thing, but it needs its friends and its sponsors and supporters. And um, we're very, very grateful to the German Embassy in partnership with the Modern Languages Department at the University of Southampton. And I know some of the students are here from Southampton tonight. We're also very grateful to LAMI, um, and also to the Poetry Society, um, and this event is in association with the Poetry Society and Modern Poetry and Translation. Tonight is Winchester Festival's Great Hymn to Europe. I hope it will come as no surprise to our audience that we are all fervently pro-European, and we want our artistic ties with Europe to remain as close as possible, as I hope you do. be widely known that Winchester Poetry Festival welcomes poets, writers, readers and listeners from all around the world. If we are to remain an open and tolerant society, then festivals like this one, a great festival, as Michael Longley said two years ago, are doing important work in keeping us open for inspiration. I believe, and I know all my colleagues here do too, that being a citizen of the world is not being a citizen of nowhere. It is to take on the very highest level of human citizenship. I hope we are all here today because we are citizens of a country, a continent, a world, and most importantly, a republic of letters. Tara Bergen is opening tonight's reading. Tara was born in Dublin but now lives and works in Northumberland. She came to the UK to pursue her academic research, namely her particular interest in the poet Ted Hughes and his relationship with translation. Ted Hughes set up the magazine Modern Poetry and Translation, and that's the magazine I edit, and he translated a number of Eastern European poets, including Hungarian poet Janusz Polinski. Tara has, in her academic work, drawn thoughtful and surprising links between Polinski and works like Crow. Tonight I know she is planning to include in her reading a new poem commissioned by Modern Poetry and Translation, which is inspired by those heady years of modern poetry and translation in the 1960s. In her own work, Tara's elusive narratorial presence, her folkloric patterning of all the material and the shifting locus of the subject make for unsettling and very rich reading. Tara is a new, gen new generation poet, and This is Yarrow, her debut collection, was published by Carcanet in 2013. John McAuliffe in the Irish Times remarked on how the poems invite a critical, engaged response from the reader. Tonight is not going to be a night for passivity. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great introduction, thank you. I'm very pleased to be here in Winchester, really uh, excited to be here. I've been reading the Keats letters and uh, on the train down here. It's it's been an interesting guidebook to Winchester. Uh, as Sasha said, I, I was born and grew up in Dublin, but I came to England a few, you know, about 10 years ago and live in the north. And so it's also always interesting to travel down to the south and, and compare the two parts. <laughs> um, so reading Keats's letter is, uh, I think, my favourite. One of my favourite phrases is when he describes the side streets, which he says are excessively maiden-like. Um, the doorsteps always fresh from the flannel. <laughs> so I would wander around looking at smelling the doorsteps, thinking, is it true? Uh, he also comments on the quietness of the door knockers here. <laughs> but he says other things in the letters about that he wrote from Winchester to do with writing, which are very interesting and relevant, I think, to the topic of translation. My favourite on this theme at the moment is when he says, I look upon fine phrases like a lover. It seems to me to be a good way of describing the work of a true translator, which I am not, I hasten to add, 
I have read a lot of translations and I think a lot about translation, but I'm not a real translator like the ones I have the honour of sharing the stage with tonight. <coughs> but the topic of translation does feature a lot in my poems. And I'm going to start tonight with a new poem, which uh, was written in response to the first ever issue of Modern Poetry and Translation, which, as Sasha said, was published in 1965, edited by Ted Hughes and Daniel Weisbord. Um, there's a complex backstory to why I wrote this poem and the way I wrote it, and various allusions in it, which I won't go into now, but it's all there on the Modern Poetry and Translation website, which is a very nice link to these poems that have been commissioned for the first, uh, for the anniversary of the first issue. This poem is called Bachman's Warbler. Who counts the money? Who sits behind a shield and tells me the phone isn't safe? Who has her lunch at one? Who shows me what I've done and makes me poorer, richer, whatever I want? Who demands my number and my key? Who is always warning me? Students, who is the nice lady in the bank? Is she death? Is she love? What feeling is she? What state might she be? Let's think of a different word for melancholy. Can we? Shall we? Oh, students, I must address you for my deathbed, for my death chair, for my death desk. I must stand at the window and address you thus. Don't refuse to taste the sweet, to taste the salt. Don't refuse it always. If I was the cause of your unhappiness, I cannot apologize. I was, of course, the cause of mine. I said yes. I said yes several times. Remember this. Yes is not always the right answer, but it might be. How will we know? Oh, I have struck 21 times the lighthouse in the Florida Keys. I have been shot by the plume hunter. I have not made a nest for 95 years. I am on the verge of extinction. I have begun my decline. And can you hear me, O oh students of the heart's revolution? It's true I lack the black patch on my throat. It's true I have a whitish eye ring. It's true my eyes are swollen. I am disappearing. When I am gone, my feathers will be guarded from academic scrutiny. But even so, I will be used and abandoned and exposed to ridicule. Students, I speak to you from my lowest ebb, from my deepest speechlessness, from my furthest silence. I dream of babies and despair. I try to kiss the postman, but he slams the door. Well, why ring the bell so loudly? I speak to you in a voice no one has heard for decades. I speak to you through lips of salt and sugar. Now, answer me. Who changes the currency? Who stamps the receipts? Who says the gesture of authenticity is also an aesthetic gesture? Who? I've become obsessed with English translations of Flaubert's Madame Bovary. She's an interesting character. It began because so many people said that Flaubert was the poet of prose, and I wanted to discover what he was up to. But I got sidetracked by comparing <coughs> many different English translations of Madame Bovary as I could get. And this poem is a very short poem called The Giving Away of Emma Bovary by Several Hands. It's just six lines long, but actually it's just one line long, because it's the same line translated by six different people. <laughs> if he asks me for her, I'll give her to him. If he asks for her, he shall have her. If he asks for her, I'll give her to him. If he asks me for her, he can have her. If he asks me for her, I'll give him her. If he asks me, I shall say yes. <laughs> They're all spoken by Anne's father, but I like the way the last one sounds like he's the woman about to be asked for his hand in marriage. One of the things I found out while I was doing this obsessive reading of Madame Bovary was that the first published English version of, of Madame Bovary was made by Eleanor Marx, the daughter of Karl Marx. And I also discovered that in March 1898, when she was about my age, she committed suicide, 
apparently, in a manner very similar to Emma Bovary, which was to swallow arsenic. And when I read about this, it got me thinking about the notion of translators becoming what they're translating. <coughs> and I've started to gather all these stories about a range of different translators whose lives have started to echo or in some way be, defect, be affected by the text that they're, they're working on. And then I try and turn the stories into poems. So this is The Tragic Death of Eleanor Marks. Mademoiselle, little Fräulein, little daughter, you have left your mark. A little jottings, a little paper, a little ink on the sides of the mouth. What did you think? That it was nice? That it was easy? La clef turned in the lock. That bit is easy, but the rest? What happened next? Ah, yes, this is what turned your head. She, Mrs. Board, Mrs. Why Did I Marry? She went over, went directly, she went straight over to the third shelf. So well did her memory serve her. And she took down and she seized and she sassied the blue jar. And then in there she, and this is where you think me, or rather I seized the, seized the jar. I tugged at the cork, tore out the stopper, pulled out the cork, pulled out the stopper, and stuck her plunged in my hand. And then withdrawing, and then with taking, and then with scooping, she drew it out. She scooped it up, I took it out, in her glove, in my fist, in a hand full of powder. And there and then, and then and there, began to eat. I wanted, she said, didn't she? Give it to me. Translation raises all these questions about faithfulness and honesty, about who has stolen, what has been lost and who has lied. But I think these are questions which a lot of writers ask themselves on a daily basis. As far as I'm concerned, nearly all of my poems start with reading or some kind of overhearing. And sometimes I just can't resist a form or an image that is not mine to start with, but with which I want to make mine. And when I think about it, when Keats says, I look upon phrases like a lover, there is admiration there, but there is also want and desire and appropriation. One more poem I'm going to read, and this last poem uses a very concise form that you find in the dating columns at the back of newspapers. And if you've ever read these, you notice that they have this form where the author not only sets out very clearly what he is, but he also states what you should be. And I was very attracted to the just complete outrageousness of this. <laughs> Personals. I am perfect. You will be same. I am demanding. You will be eager to please. I am a slut. You will be feeling on the brink of sexual liberation. I am never metaphysical. You will reject both sentimental romanticism and sophisticated intellectualism. I will argue that lechery and animism are interesting themes. You will be acquainted with a large range of street ballads. I will parody the poetry of the elite. You will begin to achieve success in the very form I parody. I will wonder where it all went wrong. You will, same. I will sit half mad with grief at the kitchen table, promising to change. You will ignore your deeper instinct and stay. Thank you very much. <laughs> to an understanding of British poetic culture. She's a major figure. She's been shortlisted for T.S. Eliot and Forward on numerous occasions. She's read very widely, enjoyed by many, many lovers of poetry. However, she's also a poet whose writing and thinking have been much influenced by work in translation. That's the thread running through tonight's evening, in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> Her beautiful translation of the 14th century dream vision, Pearl, 
was published to acclaim in 2011 and was a, also a Stephen Spender Prize winner. But it was most importantly loved by its readers. It was important to them. It was, I think, quite central to, to their lives, those people who I spoke to who'd read it. Her most recent work, um, published in this issue of Modern Poetry and Translation, is a poem written in response to the Dutch modernist classic Awater by Marius von Ninhoff. It's called The Occupant, and I know Jane is hoping to read from it tonight. You have a real treat in store. It's a formally inventive and accomplished poem, but it also has this incredible emotional weight. When I was reading it in magazine proofs, I couldn't help feeling somehow bereft each time I checked it through for punctuation. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to hearing it read by Jane herself tonight. I'd like to welcome Jane Draycott. Thank you, Sasha, for um, a really generous introduction and for this invitation, um, uh, for the, the privilege to read alongside Tara and Jan and Ian. Um, yes. I've seen a man. He doesn't have a name. Just give him all our first names, rolled in one. Each morning, by the rosy light of dawn, he leaves his suburb, walking past my window. When evening blues the sky, he comes back home. At work, his colleagues know him as Arvata. Those are from, uh, lines are from the opening passage of Martinus Nehoff, um, the great Dutch 20th century poet, his long narrative poem of the same name, uh, the, the eponymous uh, character Arwater, um, which um, is very, very well known and loved um, in the Netherlands. Um, it's a mysterious, elusive poem, uh, but it's not, or it hasn't been, um, well-known outside um, uh, the Dutch, um, Dutch readership, until recently David Colmer, whose translation I just read from, produced um, a wonderful translation of it. He's an uh, Australian living in Amsterdam with a tremendous poet's ear himself. So I really recommend this translation of, of, of Nahoff's poem by David Colmer. I came across it um, Soon after I had finished uh, translating the, the medieval elegy, Pearl, um, and was struck by consonances between the two poems, um, which drew me to it. Um, and um, I, I spent some time in Amsterdam. I was very lucky um, to be uh, hosted as writer in residence in Amsterdam, which gave me a couple of summers, hot summers ago actually, um, which gave me a chance to talk to. Um, poets and um, academics and poet academics um, about the poem itself. Um, and I'll, I'll just, um, before I read the poem, which eventually sort of emerged um, in my own writing from uh, in the trail, in the footsteps really, of, of Nyhoff's great poem, um, I thought I'd just, um, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, I thought I'd just give you a sense of the kind of uh, poem Awato is. I would love to be able to read from, from the Dutch, but I absolutely don't. I think that's recording as well, so there's no way I'm going to try and do this. Um, but um, the epigraph to the poem um, reads like um, a, a classified ad, a wanted, a travelling companion. Um, and the narrator, who you heard there, describes seeing Awato come and go from work, his neighbour Awata come and go from work, um, has recently lost uh, his brother and he decides to follow Awata secretly to kind of stalk him like a spy um, in the hope of finding that Awata might be a replacement for his lost brother. I've been alone now since my brother's death. When looking for a travelling companion, one finds out first if one can get along. That's why, tonight, I'll be 
Arwalter's shadow, and bide my time until I have his measure. I've forged that plan, but here, before the steps, I hesitate. 5.30 sounds and time expands. The street becomes a stream of passers-by. Each patch of darkness slows to strike a light. Suddenly, Arvata is there, blinking his eyes. I watch him on the final flight of stairs from work. No mortal soul, no town, no glow of dusk exists for him. He hurriedly descends the sandstone steps between the two brass snakes, eyes fixed, it seems, on some remote horizon, where constant bolts of lightning charge the sky. He rushes past so fast, it seems as if he's seen the place he hopes to find and heard the thing he dreams of. And I feel pierced. So the, the, the kind of elusive pursuit continues. Um, uh, the, the poet narrator trails Arwata, trying to keep his distance the whole time, trying to remain unseen. Uh, follows Arwata into a bar where he drinks at a bar, he watches him there, then into a restaurant. Um, and uh, the trail continues. And, and gradually, as the poem progresses, the reader has the sense that, um, not unlike the Pearl poem in a way, uh, Arwata is a kind of guide rather than um, the, the, the quarry in this pursuit. Um, something, like, something like the dream guide um, that we meet so powerfully in, in a lot of medieval dream poetry. Um, and Arwata, it turns out, is not just a, an accountant or appears to work in a bank, he, he's also a poet, it appears, uh, so, that, so the narrator discovers. So it becomes an increasingly haunting and sort of resonant poem, elegiac, a great sense of chasing the lost, trying to find a kind of sense of what might be next following lost. But it's a sense also of, 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 of what's been lost, of all that's lost. Um, the poem was written in 1934, and a year later, in 1935, Nahok gave a lecture in which he talked about the, uh, the composition of the poem, and he talked about how Arwata became, um, uh, as, the poem, as the composition of the poem continued, Arwata actually became um, someone who he, he became closer and closer to as a poet, which he resisted, but in some sense had a, had a, had a kind of sense of, of himself in that figure. Um, at one point he follows Arwata into the uh, barber's shop, He shoots, this is Arwata, he shoots abruptly down a side street. A shop bell rings. He must have gone inside. A notice on the door says, cut and shave. The small salon is flanked by shelves and cupboards and so awash with the overpowering reek of toiletries that it seems smaller still. Arwata, I must admit, I'm quite relieved to see him. He'd almost given me the slip is sitting at a round ceramic sink, wrapped tightly in a cloak of stark white linen. The barber does his job, and I pretend to be the next in line and take a seat. I've never seen Arwata closer by than in this mirror. Never has he appeared so absolutely inaccessible. And so the poem continues, um, ending in the uh, ending at the station, um, and this is where, reading it now in David's translation, um, reading it now, one, one has a very strong sense of its power um, as a poem very much for its time. So again, in that 1935 lecture about the composition of the poem, which Nayhoff called Poetry in a Period of Crisis. In 1935, he wrote, This is the clearest thing in this crisis. A realisation of the bankruptcy of our ideals. 
But how can poetry make the world habitable once more? The world is a hell, a desert for whoever dares open his eyes. The pursuit of Awata made the desert habitable, or at least travelable for me. And I'll just read you a, a short extract from the, from the closing of the poem. Um, at the station, um, the, the, the narrator comes across Arvata listening to a Salvation Army speaker, a woman addressing the crowd that Naihoto mother was, was, a, Salvation, was a Salvationist. Um, and this is the point where Arvata and the poet narrator come, come the closest for the first and only time Awata returns to look at the narrator, but it's also the moment of departure. In a sense, this is sort of parallel with the, uh, with the uh, poem in the translation duel that we heard, kind of arc of the poem here. Um, so this is from that final section. Um, it begins with the words of the Salvation Army speaker. We live our lives all wrong, she says, and pauses. Arvata, who has slowed and stopped, turns back and studies me as if he knows my face. I see a look in his eyes that seems to ask, where from? A tram? A theatre intermission? It's blowing hard. His hand is on his hat. Wind playing with her hair lays down a loop of gold on the Salvationist's black sleeve. No one, she says, has ever loved in vain. Arvata stays. I carry on and dash as if I've seen the train I hope to catch. The stoker shovels coal into the fire. The engine driver leans out of his window. She calls the Orient Express and calls anew. She calls that it is taking much too long. Her head of steam is totally single-minded. Whatever hopes you have or push aside again, she doesn't care. Her eyes are on the sky. So I, I warmly recommend you to discover that poem. Um, in fact, there are several uh, translations in in this uh, edition for Anvil and an essay by Professor uh, William Fondonaka of Utrecht University who, who uh, talks about the possibility that Arwata might even be a figure for Eliot himself, the poet, accountant, poet, banker. So, um, I, or this poem, I should put it the other way around actually, this poem sort of came into being uh, over, over quite a while, but um, drawing very much on, on things that I, I, I felt um, important um, and, and that meant something personally to me um, in my own writing. Um, Our author is a much, much longer poem, it's over 300 lines, and uh, this poem, which I've, the new poem, which I've called The Occument, um, is something over 100 lines, uh, but it, it um, and I really enjoyed doing this. It it plays with it, kind of comes into being um, through a, um, the less monoreme uh, form. Some of you may know that. So these are single rhymes, single vowel rhymes across whole sections. Uh, Arvato is in eight sections. This is in a, a shorter form in, in five sections. So using that um, that single rhyme, it's a fantastic propulsive thing in your ear. I recommend it. Uh, mm. I won't read it all, but this is um, this is a it's a poem in different scenes, different voices. Um, a couple of the scenes are the scenes that Nehoff had intended in his plan to use in in Awata, but dropped them. Uh, scene in cinema, um, scene in the park. All day, be calmed. The city sits at anchor. In victory gardens, tourists cram the shady benches. Jasmine shrivels in the back streets. At tills and kiosks, police post notices. Missing, have you seen this wind? The frail expire 
and pale dogs whimper, quarantined on this stilled ship. Just now, I thought I saw you slip a needle's eye through tram doors, singing as you went. Only that glimpse, and you were gone, invisible, eclipsed once more by stone and brick. I pray for a miraculous pitch of snow. Across the road, a cinema beckons. Exit, way in, the doors revolve. This way for winter, they seem to say. It's like a fridge in here, the inside of a kiss made cool by ice and gin. I swim into its darker water, swallowed in. The films, set in some future city, narrowed skies, the air electric. And then I see you there, amid the extras, as if you'd walked in from the street and been uplifted to the screen, its living window. You seem so happy there. What is that world? So much I'd never noticed, I see now. How tall and willowy you've grown, the way your spirit flickers between eyes and lips. Outside, it's getting dark. A stirring's in the air. A breath from somewhere distant, as though a storm had flapped a wing. Boarding the train was like taking my place on the back of the mythical serpent, that tale of citizens carried along the lanes in open daylight, watched from the gables and roof lights by neighbours who gazed amazed as the dragon snaked them away. We have come to a region of skyscrapers, giant redwoods of glass that sway under the clouds. We have come to a place I never dreamed so close, so strange. It seems like forever. We are going to tame the storm at sea. I cannot wait. Raised on the storm farm, he roams the horizon. Lamplighter, far from home, powering through clouds, blown sail, close to overload. Some woeful wrongdoing done. Some woe to raise electrodes in the throat. Then cinema inferno, white water, solders down the skies, sheer stone and rain comes, molten. Furious now, he throws it all in the fire pit. So the house blows wholly open. Our streets a shallow sound, water no wider than a child might wade to cross its sudden tide. The city falling shivers on its shine and in our rows of lighthouses we climb the stairs to keep the lantern rooms alight. Where in all this rain are you? Beside the presidential palace some imp or sprite left over from the storm is tugging wildly at the flag like a looter in a riot. This time last year, it fluttered at half-mast. Like a giant bending low, you said, and wiped away a tear for whoever must have died. Perhaps, you said, the family are at the graveside now, all making tea at home, and I replied, at times like this, some people like to be outside. Not shut up in their cockpit of a fire tower, in case tonight should be the night, and this is in a dream, you cycle by and wave to me across the stream's divide. I'll wait until the dogs bark five more times, and five more cars, our ministers, Scientists, generals, roll down the palace drive, then ride out to the dunes and find you, lying in the fine long grasses, fine for miles, the restless grasses, restless, moving, fine. Thank you.
Versuch über Mücken. Als hätten sich alle Buchstaben auf einmal aus der Zeitung gelöst und stünden als Schwarm in der Luft. Stehen als Schwarm in der Luft. Bringen von all den schlechten Nachrichten keine. Dürftige Musen, dürre Pegasusse summen sich selbst nur ins Ohr. Geschaffen aus den letzten Farben von Rauch, wenn die Kerze erlischt, so leicht, dass sich kaum sagen lässt, sie sind, erscheinen sie fast als Schatten, die man aus einer anderen Welt in die unsere wirft. Sie tanzen, dünner als mit Bleistift gezeichnet, wie Glieder, winzige Sphinxenleiber. Der Stein von Rosetta, ohne den Stein. An Essay on Midges. As if all the letters had suddenly floated free of a paper and formed a swarm in the air, They form a swarm in the air of all that bad news telling us nothing, those skimpy muses, wispy pegasuses, pegasuses, <laughs> only a buzz with the hum of themselves, made from the last twist of smoke as the candle is snuffed, so light you can hardly say they are, looking more like shadows, umbre, jettisoned by another world to enter our own. They dance, their legs finer than anything pencil can draw, 
with their minuscule, sphinx-like bodies. The Rosetta Stone, without the stone. Good, good evening. Thank you very much for the kind invitation. It's a pleasure to be here, for having us here. Thank you for that. Um, we started up with this uh, homage to the mosquito or the midge, and uh, we'll continue with some seemingly small uh, and unspectacular everyday matters. This next poem is a poem uh, on bed sheets. Laken. Großvater wurde einbalsamiert in seines und hinausgetragen. Und ich entdeckte ihn ein Jahr später, als wir die Betten frisch bezogen, zur Wespe verschrumpelt, winziger Pharao eines längst vergangenen Sommers. So faltete man Laken, die Arme weit ausgebreitet, dass man sich zu spiegeln begann über die straff gespannte Fläche hinweg. Der Wäschefox trott dann, bis Schritt um Schritt ein Rechteck im nächst kleineren verschwand, bis sich die Nasen fast berührten. Alles konnte verborgen sein in ihrem schneeigen Innern. Ein leerer Flakon mit einem Spukparfum, ein paar Lavendelblüten oder Wiesenblumen, ein Groschen oder ab und zu ein Wurf von Mottenkugeln in seinem Nest. Fürs Erste aber ruhten sie, stumm und weiß in ihren Schränken, ganze Stapel von ihnen, eingelegt in Duft, gemangelt, gebügelt, gestärkt und sorgfältig gepackt, wie Fallschirme vor einem Sprung aus ungeahnten Höhen. Sheets. Grandfather was embalmed in his and carried out, and I discovered him one year later when we changed the beds, shriveled to a wasp, tiny pharaoh of a long-gone summer. Sheets were folded by spreading your arms to mirror your opposite across their taut expanse. Then came the laundry foxtrot each rectangle swallowed by its half, our noses nearly touching. Anything could be hidden in their snowy hearts, an empty vial containing a ghost of perfume, lavender blossoms or meadow flowers, a penny, the odd clutch of mothballs in their nest. But now they slumbered, mute and white in their cupboards, great piles of them, steeped in fragrance, mangled, ironed and starched, as scrupulously stacked as parachutes before a jump from undreamt-of heights. Witte, mach dich schwerer, rufen sie. Also schließe ich beide Augen, denke an Säcke voll Zement, und Eisengießereien, Elefanten an den Anker in seinem Schlamm, wo ein Manöver Wale vorübergleitet an das Bullenhaupt eines Ambosses. Nur eine Weile die Luft anhalten, warten, doch nichts hebt sich oder senkt sich, während ein Fasan schreit und die Blätter fallen, meine unwilligen Beine zu kurz, um je den Grund zu fassen. Mein Kopf beinahe in den Wolken. <clears throat> Seesaw. Make yourself heavier, they call. I close both eyes, thinking of sacks of cement, <laughs> iron foundries and elephants, an anchor sinking in deep mud while a fleet of whales manoeuvres above it, an anvil's bullish head. For a while, I hold my breath and wait, to no avail. Nothing goes up, nothing goes down. A pheasant screams, leaves fall, 
My legs, too short, will never reach the ground. My head is well nigh in the clouds. The next poem is taken from a sequence of 18 poems um, based on, on uh, internationally known pastry or pie dishes. Um, all, all of these 18 poems, it's actually based on a um, quotation by Samuel Pepys who uh, talks about being invited to a, a marriage celebration of 18 years and eight, uh, serving a pie for every year of the marriage. And uh, so it's, it's a sequence on, on food and love. This is the last poem of that sequence, uh, it starts with fish uh, and meat, then vegetables and um, some fruit pies or pastries. In the end, this is a um, prepared quinces, quitten pastete. Wenn sie der Oktober ins Asswerk hängte, ausgebeulte Lampions, war es Zeit. Wir pflückten Quitten, wuchteten körbelweise gelb in die Küche und das Wasser. Apfel und Birne reiften ihrem Namen zu, einer schlichten Süße, anders als die Quitte, an ihrem Baum im hintersten Winkel meines Alphabets, im Latein des Gartens, hart und fremd in ihrem Arom. Wir schnitten, viertelten, entkernten das Fleisch, vier große Hände, zwei kleine, schemenhaft. Im Dampf des Entsafters gaben Zucker, Hitze, Mühe zu etwas, das sich roh dem Mund versagte. Wer konnte, wollte Quitten begreifen. Ihr Gelee in baubigen Gläsern für die dunklen Tage in den Regalen aufgereiht, in einem Keller von Tagen, wo sie leuchteten, leuchten. Quince Jelly. When October hung them among the leaves, those bulging lanterns, then it was time. We picked ripe quinces, lugged the baskets of yellow bounty into the kitchen, soused the fruits in water. The pears and apples grew towards their names, to a simple sweetness, unlike quinces clinging to branches in some shadowy border's alphabet, obscure in our garden's Latin, tough and foreign in their aroma. We cut, quartered, cored the flesh. We were four adult hands, two somewhat smaller, veiled by clouds of steam from the blender, poured in sugar, heat and effort, to something that, raw, made our palates bulk, But then, who could, who would hope to explain them? Quinces, jellied, lined up in bellied jars, on shelves and set aside for the darkness, stored for harsher days, a cellar of days, in which they shone, are still shining. Decided to miss out the germ with one poem, save a couple of minutes. In the Well. Six, seven meters free fall, and I was further away than ever before. A cosmonaut in his field stone capsule, gazing from afar at the precious round of blue. I was the child in the well. Only the moss climbed the braided twine of itself to the lip. Ivy climbed on shoulders of ivy into the open to freedom. Now and then, the white flash of a bird. Off and on, the white bird flash. I ate anything slower. The moon slid op over the opening, a boffin's eye at the microscope. Just when the words slater and stone had begun to mean slater and stone, noise arrived, a hollering and hurrying. In front of my nose began a rope. I went back to tolling bells, back to bread smells and bus times, 
to shade under the trees and talking about the weather went back to christenings and tragedies, to the headlines of which I was one. Selbstporträt mit Bienenschwarm. Bis eben nichts als eine feine Linie um Kinn und Lippen. Jetzt ein ganzer Bart, der wächst und wimmelt, bis ich Magdalena zu gleichen scheine, ganz und gar behaart vom Bienen bin. Wie es von allen Seiten heranstürmt, wie man langsam Gramm um Gramm an Dasein zunimmt, an Gewicht und Weite, das regungslose Zentrum vom Gesang. Ich ähnele mit meinen ausgestreckten Armen einem Ritter, die die Knappen in seine Rüstung helfen, Stück um Stück, erst Helm, dann Harnisch, Arme, Beine, Nacken, bis er sich kaum noch rühren kann, nicht läuft, nur schimmernd dasteht, nur mit ein paar Winden hinter dem Glanz, ein bisschen alter Luft und wirklich sichtbar erst mit dem Verschwinden. Self-Portrait with a Swarm of Bees A moment ago, I wore at best a fuzz around my chin and lips, but now my beard is growing and seething, I might even pass for Magdalena. All my face, her suit with bees. How they come buzzing from every side, and ounce by ounce, how a person's being slowly but steadily gains in weight and spread to become the stone's still center of song. My arms outstretched, I bear a resemblance to some ancient knight whom bustling varlets help to fit his suit of armor piece by piece, first the helmet, then the harness, arms, legs, nape, until he can hardly move, who does not tread, just stands there gleaming, with barely a hint of wind behind the luster, lingering breath, and only vanishing becomes distinct. We'll read three more poems. Uh, the first uh, poem is uh, actually a sonnet, or a sonnet subversion. Uh, it's, uh, um, it's dedicated to a weed that every gardener knows and, and most likely hates, uh, because you can, you can eat it, you can make soup or salad, from it, but you can't eat so much as to clear the whole garden from that weed. In German it's called Giersch, which is a lovely word, uh, Giersch, because it contains another word, Gier, and it has beautiful sounds you can play with, and the poem does play with those sounds. And the English term would be ground elder, wouldn't it? Yes, it would, yeah. Uh, but it's not in, in the no, translation. No, not in the translation. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'll read the German first, it's uh, Giersch is the German word, Giersch. Nicht zu unterschätzen, der Giersch, mit dem Begehren schon im Namen. Darum die Blüten, die so schwebend weiß sind, keusch wie ein Tyrannentraum. Kehrt stets zurück wie eine alte Schuld, schickt seine Kassiber durchs Dunkel, unterm Rasen, unterm Feld, bis irgendwo erneut ein weißes Widerstandsnest empor schießt. Hinter der Garage beim knirschenden Kies der Kirsche, Giersch, als Schäumen, als Gischt, der ohne ein Geräusch geschieht, bis hoch zum Giebel kriecht, bis Giersch schier überall sprießt, im ganzen Garten Giersch sie über Giersch schiebt, ihn verschwindet, liegt nichts als Giersch. Yes, the, the story of how it became a bindweed is simply because of vowels, because I decided that either, um, if I was going to translate it, I needed very good vowels. And I didn't feel that ground elder were going to, <laughs> going to provide the, 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 the vowels that I needed. And so I turned it into another white, often white, smotherer called bindweed. Also the plague of many a garden. Do not underestimate the bindweed. 
its need for wreath and stifle rooted deep in its name. Hence the blossom, blinding, white, as chaste as a tyrant's dream. Like an ancient crime, <coughs> an unpaid debt, it returns to haunt a scene. By cover of darkness, beneath the fields or a lawn, it sends out feelers, fires a riot, rises glorious in green. Behind the barn, convolved in cypress or bean, the unkind climber spirals, a seething, creeping spume, it twines up walls and roam, choking windows and drain, trumpeting, binding, abiding, till nothing breathes but bindweed and nothing more is seen. <laughs> Lamento mit Jack Trägt sein Gebirge überm Pass, bepackt mit Seide einen Sack voll Reis, gerät auf schmalstem Grat, nicht aus dem Tritt, dem Takt. Vorbei am Flugzeugwrack der Yeti-Spur, in seinem Stall Himalaya vor weißgezackten Gipfeln. Jack, die Zottel, sein Schamanenhaupt. Mit dem Geschmack von Milch im Mund, so fett, dass man sie kauen kann, zu sehen, wie er rackert, rackert am Bach dem Katarakt aus Eis. Die Augenkugeln, schwarzer Lack, mit einem schwachen Licht im Innern, ach, bei Nacht, die knackenden Feuerstellen, sein Dung von Sonne gebacken darin, der Rauch über der Ebene, dem Acker. Bei Nacht, das kalte Flackern der Sterne, das Krachen der Lawinen, während sein nackter Schädel zwischen Dach und Fensterrahmen wacht. Doch ach, doch ach, jack, ach, jack, ach. There's a resemblance to the it develops the, 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 the life world, home place, work world, out of the sound of its name. Lamentation with a yak. He'll drag a mountain up the pass, pack crammed with silk and sacks of rice. Along the ridge he'll never slack, slip or stumble, forward always, never back. Past the plane wreck, past a yeti spoor in his Ladakh of snow-white mountain stacks, the yak. His shaggy hair, the shaman's head, and on his tongue a smack of milk, so fat he'll never lack for grass. Hard to watch a draught beast, racked so, up tracks, through icy cataracts, pupils as black as lacquer, and deep within, that feeble glow, ach. By night, the bivouacs, the fires crackling, fueled by his sun-baked dung, smoke carrying across the valley. By night, the arctic chill, the sparkle of stars, the cracking glaciers, while his massive skull keeps watch from the gable of this shack. But ach, but ach. Yak. Ach. Yak. Ach. <laughs> um, we'll finish off with a very short poem. Thank you once again for the invitation. Um, and thank you, Ian, for wrestling with the bindweed and, <laughs> and tackling the yak. <laughs> and, um, it's, it's, thank you very much. It's, it's a, it's a um, play with the most popular Japanese form, which is the haiku, of course. It's a double haiku uh, called tea bag in German, tea bottle. Eins. Nur in Sackleinen gehüllt, kleiner Eremit in seiner Höhle. Zwei. Nichts als ein Faden führt nach oben. Wir geben ihm fünf Minuten. Tea bag. Uh, one. Draped only in a sackcloth mantle, the little hermit in his cave. Two. A single thread leads to the upper world. 
We shall give him five minutes. 